centuries past are all on the line here. And so God's glory is on the line in the resurrection. And Scripture gives us four aligning accounts of the resurrection. They devote a lot of space and time so that we would know that this is not only a central piece to salvation history, but that we would know that it's true. And we turn to the Gospel of Luke this morning, and Luke's most important contribution to that four accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, his most important contribution is of two guys on the road to Emmaus. Jesus appears after his death to these men, showing them indeed that he has risen. Now, in very Lucan style, these men are obscure. They're kind of unlikely figures. We know one of their name. The other one we don't know at all, but the Lord appears to them. The first appearance of Jesus in Luke's gospel comes after that dark Saturday on an Easter Sunday stroll to this place called Emmaus. Verse 13 of chapter 24, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. They were going about seven miles, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing, both men here, they're they're quick, as we're going to find out later, to be men who identify with Jesus, to say that we have some sort of close association with him. They're going to say later that they had hoped that he was going to be the Redeemer. And so they're quick to identify with Jesus. They're also in the know about what has happened up until this point. So we have Jesus who has been missing from the tomb, and they know about it because they have some sort of a close association with the 11 apostles, as they're going to go report to them at the end, and to the women who were at the cross and at the tomb. They heard from them. And though these men are kind of obscure, we know one of them's name is Cleopas. The other one we don't know. They're kind of obscure, but they're in the know. They have some sort of a close association. They closely follow Jesus. One of them we know is Cleopas. At Jesus' crucifixion, we see this in John 19, verse 25, there was a woman there named Mary, wife of Clopas. That could have been the Aramaic name and could have translated to Greek, could have been Cleopas. So it's possible that one of the women that was at the cross, this is her husband walking on the road to Emmaus, so maybe that's why there's some knowledge of not only the 11 apostles, but also the, the women who were at the crucifixion and had some eyewitness account and also at the tomb that knew that Jesus was missing. The other, we don't know. Maybe this is Luke himself. Maybe they're traveling to his house even to join Luke in a meal. But their connection with Jesus, with the 11, with the women, points to their knowledge of firsthand accounts of Jesus' burial and missing tomb. And it also points to a long Saturday. In the Gospel of Luke, the last time we saw Jesus was in chapter 23, verse 46. Stark verse that ends like this, that he, the author of life, breathed his last course, that's not unexpected. Jesus was crucified. He died. That's what happens when you're put on a cross. You, you die. Crucifixion led to painful and public death, and then it led to burial, and that's where we see him next. In verse 52, there's a man who comes and asks for the body of Jesus, and they take him down. They wrapped him in a linen shroud. They laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had been laid before. 
So in Luke's gospel, we've seen Jesus breathe his last and be placed in a tomb. And that was a long Saturday. In verse 21, it says that they had hoped that Jesus was the Redeemer, was the one to redeem Israel. They thought this is maybe the one. But his crucifixion and death, that he breathed his last through a magnificent, a whopping wrench into their thoughts that he could be the Redeemer. Hope is crushed by Jesus' death. And Saturday then became very hard for them. If all their hope was that Jesus was the Redeemer, and then he is in, put on the cross, breathes his last, laid in a tomb, then all of a sudden Saturday becomes likely a very hard, painful, and confusing day. The question of why probably was lingering, haunting them. They'd spent days, years of their lives following after this man, listening to him, watching what he has done. And they thought, maybe this is the one who redeems us. And now he's in a tomb. Everything had gone wrong if Jesus was the Redeemer. Everything. These men walking on the road remind us that part of following Jesus is experiencing what these men experienced. Part of following Jesus means there's going to be some long Saturdays. Even Sunday mornings are stretched into darkness. Where there's death. Periods of darkness. Times of waiting. Nagging. Unanswered questions. Why? Before there's resurrection. Jesus didn't zap these men out of the world. He didn't jump in and answer all of their questions on Saturday saying, just quiet now for a while. I'll be there in body soon so you won't have to question any longer. He doesn't do those things. He doesn't give them a strong potion on the Last Supper that says, hey, you know what? It's going to be a long couple of days. Drink this on Saturday. You'll fall asleep. You'll wake up again on Sunday morning and, and you'll see, like, it doesn't make sense now, but I'll put it all together. He doesn't do that. He did tell them in advance it would happen. I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised. But he didn't spare them its harsh reality. Part of following Jesus is, is walking in the midst of some of that darkness and harsh reality at times of, of these questions that are lingering of why, what has gone wrong here? One author says it's the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and that long pause between death and resurrection, that is the hardest. We don't know why, and life is pure pain. Everything has gone wrong. Have you ever been there? That's not outside the, the story of, of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So if you've ever been there, stick with this story. Because resurrection is coming, and it's going to change everything. But for these two, that was still a long, hard painful Saturday that's now stretching into Sunday. And on Sunday, they start hearing some odd news. If you look back up in verse 1 of chapter 24, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, that is the women, taking the spices they'd prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went, they didn't find the body of Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. 
And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the, man, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. In verse 12, Peter rose and he ran to the tomb and he, he was stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by himself and he went home marveling at what had happened. So this is the news that these two guys have heard on this Sunday morning as they, they start like, okay, we've heard this news and they start taking their stroll to Emmaus. And this gave them plenty to discuss as they walked. What is going on? The world has been turned upside down. Now they're hearing this strange news that Jesus was missing from the tomb that he had definitely been buried in. They saw that he was buried there, and now all of a sudden he's missing. But on the road, these two guys, they, they talk about what's going on. They don't know the reality that we know. They don't know that Jesus has raised. And so in verse 15, they're, they're talking and discussing, and the, the hint, the clues of the words are that, it, that it's, it's a little bit heated. They, there's some emotion here. The same type of way they were discussing who was the greatest earlier in the Gospel of Luke. That's kind of what they're doing now. They're getting into it a little bit. And guess what happens in verse 15? Jesus himself drew near and went with them. There, there he is. There's the resurrected Christ. Right? The, the magnitude of Jesus' appearance on this road with these two men like just cannot be fathomed. It's off the charts, and yet it's easy to miss, isn't it? To just fly over. Verse 15. They were discussing these things and Jesus appeared. And you're already on to verse 16 before you've even given a thought to what happened in verse 15. Dead people don't appear. They don't walk on roads with other guys. They don't just like, hey, you know what, it's Sunday, it's pretty nice out, I'll just pick a couple people and we'll go on a walk. Doesn't matter if it's only been a few days or if it's been many days, dead people don't do that, but Jesus does. In Acts chapter 2, Peter says that it was impossible for death to hold him. Impossible for death to hold him. Amen. Jesus is the one who says that he lays down his life and he takes it up again. And here in verse 15, it's been taken up. He's there with them. Jesus then must be the one who has the power over death if he can go through it and come out the other side to go on a stroll on a Sunday morning. He appears very undead. So it's time to start breaking out the Easter songs, right? Let's start singing because he lives. But they don't know who it is. He appears like a normal guy. I'm assuming he's not glowing at this point. That would have probably identified him as something, like something different's going on. <laughs> there might not be a halo over his head that identifies him in most pictures that we'll see, right? It's like, that's missing too. They don't, they don't. Since they think, here's just a guy who just came up to us. He just kind of sidled up here, and here we are. We're walking now. He's not glowing. In verse 16, it tells us that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Literally, at this point, death has been ripped apart. Its power has been defeated. Sin's penalty has been paid. Death has been defeated. It has been laid in its grave. Surely the, the angels in heaven are looking down on this moment, glorying in the victory that Jesus has already won and how he's walking around in the body like another human being. They're glorying in the victory of the Son of God over sin and death here. Jesus' appearance shows that he has the victory. 
that the darkness that they faced on that Friday and Saturday, that it didn't last, that there's resurrection life after crucifixion and death. And so now we start singing because he lives, right? But they can't identify him. They don't recognize him. This is very unlike Paul's walk on the Damascus road where there's this bright shining light and he's like, who are you, Lord? They don't recognize him like that. He doesn't identify himself to Paul. He says, I'm Jesus, the one, you've been cruci- or the one that you've been persecuting. Doesn't do that here. Now, isn't that strange? Why in the world didn't they recognize him? Why didn't he say, like, I'm Jesus? Don't you recognize me? Don't you remember? That seems strange. And what's even more strange is that they were kept from this. God, isn't that the opposite of the goal? Doesn't he want to be known as the one who raised from death. And yet here they're kept from it. Jesus appears to them on the road, but they don't recognize him. And Jesus aims with this to appear to them in a different way, in a deeper way as well. Because he's not identified, a conversation is then opened up where Jesus is able to lovingly and patiently and purposely pursue them. Listen to verse 17. And he said to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Now they're rightly sad if we think from their perspective. To them, this guy that appears is just another guy. And he didn't just rip off a scab like he is poking an open wound. What do you mean what just happened? The one that we thought was the Redeemer has died. Notice here that if you're kind of skeptical about the resurrection, that these guys weren't looking for it. They're not saying like, man, Jesus said something about that. Maybe we should be looking for him. They're not looking for him at all. The first, all the first to believe in the resurrection were those who were unlikely to believe it, were slow to believe it, were skeptical to believe it. These guys fit right into that. In verse 18, One of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to him, What things? And they said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. Now notice here that Though they're skeptical to think about the resurrection, they they are quick to confess that Jesus is someone that they had great hope in. He is this one who is a prophet, mighty in word, mighty in deed. And they heard or saw these things. They they had heard or, or saw or known about how Jesus, he went to these synagogues and he taught. But he didn't teach like others taught. He taught as one who had authority. He had insight. He had wisdom beyond all others. They, they knew this. They probably had heard it with their own ears. They saw how he spoke in parables and how it seemed to, to drive the Pharisees mad. But so many people heard with open ears these wonderful stories that Jesus was telling about the kingdom of God. They heard how he answered the authorities as they were trying to trap him, how he masterfully worked through their traps and escaped each and every time, or how he would speak to those that no one was going to speak to, and he goes and seeks them out. 
they heard or, or perhaps they saw Jesus heal the sick like the paralyzed man who was lowered down before him, who he first said, your sins are forgiven. Then he said, go ahead and take up your bed and walk. He saw, they saw how he forgave him and then healed him. They saw how he cast out demons by just speaking his word, how he healed the blind or even how he raised a widow's son. And this led to chapter 7, verse 16. They say that fear seized them all, and they glorify God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And Jesus' words and his deeds, they, they started to create this great buzz. Right? Have, you heard, have you heard what he's done? Have you, have you seen? Have you been hearing what's going on there? What Jesus has been doing? And it just created this buzz around. It was known. It was talked about. It brought all sorts of speculation for the Jews, there was already in this built-in expectation that a Messiah was going to come, that a great prophet was going to come. They got this from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 18. It says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, like Moses, from among your brothers. So they had this expectation that one's going to come, and he's going to be mighty in word and deed, and he's going to do some of the things that Moses did, and he's going to speak in great power. And so when John the Baptist comes on the scene, they start looking at him, and he's saying all these great things, and he's saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is coming. Like, you need to get ready for the king who's to come. And these people just come to him out in the middle of the wilderness, even though he's dressed strangely, he looks weird, and he says some hard things, and they're like, I want to be baptized by you. So they're thinking, maybe this is the one. So they ask him, are you the prophet? Because there's this expectation in him, and John the Baptist is like, no, but he's coming. And so now when Jesus comes along and he's mighty in word and deed, they look to Jesus and like, maybe this is the one. And so these two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they thought that maybe he was the prophet. He's mighty in word and deed. And yet prophet, this great prophet, doesn't seem to capture Jesus' words and deeds. They're, they're a little bit beyond that. They're, they're well beyond what Moses was able to do. And certainly Jesus did claim more. So in verse 21, they're saying, we thought he was the redeemer. It's a bold statement considering the one that they're calling the Redeemer had just been crucified as an enemy of the state. Not only by the Romans was he crucified, but his chief priests had turned him over. Notice the contrast that they placed between themselves and the rulers here with regard to Jesus as they state very openly that they had hoped that he was the Redeemer. When all the religious leaders said, this guy's a fraud. But also notice that they hoped and then crucifixion happened. And they couldn't put together the idea that there's some sort of redeemer and one that would be crucified. Those don't fit together. That doesn't make sense. And so on Sunday morning, as they're, as they're walking and they've heard about this empty tomb, like the, the puzzle pieces are not going together. They're not looking for anything. Sunday doesn't make sense. And in verse 22, they keep saying what's going on. Moreover, some of the women of our company, they amazed us. And they were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and, and found it just as the women had said. But him, they didn't see. So again, you've seen this conversation that Jesus has lovingly and patiently pursued with them. He's been so patient. Now, are you the only one that doesn't know these things that have happened? And he's like, I don't know. How could he have not known? He's the only one that actually knew. And then Jesus, he rebukes them and questions them. Verse 25, he says, O foolish ones, 
and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer, for, suffer these things and enter into his glory? The, the rebuke is not for not recognizing him when he walked up to them, but for not believing the scriptures. The rebuke is for their lack of faith, their unbelief that's in them. Jesus could have pointed back to them and said, I've said this multiple times that I was going to be crucified, handed over into evil men, and then I was going to raise on the third day. I told you guys this in advance, what was going to happen so that when it happened, you wouldn't have to think, man, what's going on here? But instead, what does he do? He points back to the prophets. So that even if no one had heard what Jesus had predicted, they should still anticipate that he was going to come, the Messiah was going to come and suffer and then enter into his glory. We get this right at the beginning. Genesis, we're just, we're just barely into the, the story. God has created all things. We get to Genesis 3, and they, they sin against God. They disobey him and rebel against his good commands. And what happens? There's this prophecy, the, the first presentation of the gospel, right? There's this enmity that's placed between the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And what's going to happen? What was it? Chapter 3, verse 15 says that, the, the seed of the woman is going to be raised up, and he is going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent. But how? There's going to be a heel bruise in the middle of this. In other words, there's glory, but there's suffering. Or Joseph. Joseph. You think of Joseph, prince of Egypt, right? First he went to jail. First he went to the pits. Then he's raised up. Then he goes back down. Then he's raised up again. There's suffering, then glory. Moses, he's leaves Egypt. He is not leading anything. He is all alone. He goes out to the land before the glory of being able to go up with God on the mountain with a group of people that God had redeemed. David lives on his own, sometimes in caves as a crazy person, before he's then exalted as king over Israel. Isaiah gives these suffering servant passages, right, where this, this servant comes. He's the one who's, who's to be mighty counselor, this king, this prince of peace, and yet he's also the one who bears transgressions, is wounded. So there's suffering, then exaltation. There's suffering and then glory. It's all over. Genesis to Malachi, it's everywhere, and Jesus is pointing back to that, and they missed it. They have no expectancy for this at all, and it's because of their unbelief. And because of their unbelief, they walk in shattered hope. They're they're broken. They're sad. Their hopes have been shredded. And Jesus meets them there. In the midst of their shattered hope. He didn't just appear to them as this person walking with them on the road. He appears to them in another way. Listen to verse 27. And beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. On the road, Jesus looks all over the Old Testament and says, that's all about me. Every part of that whispers my name. I'm everywhere. 
he doesn't come to them and say, you know what, here's something new because I've arisen. Here's some new revelation for you. He actually points them to something really ancient and says, I'm everywhere there. I've been everywhere there all along. Every single story there is pointing to me. He doesn't cut off connection from the Old Testament as if, all right, guys, I'm risen. Let's leave that behind. I've got some stuff to tell you now and teach you. He says, let me teach you what's actually already there. Let's just look at it. And so he deepens the connection with the Old Testament, not only affirming it, but showing its fulfillment in himself. What a great principle for thinking about studying the scriptures, for applying the Bible, that all of it is about Jesus. It's all pointing to him, his life, his death, his resurrection. He's the hero. He's the star from front to back. It's all about Jesus. Now, likely many of you have probably uh, watched the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, or however many movies there are. There's probably a billion of them now. We kind of skipped a few as we went along through this path. There was this chart that they came out with, this flow chart of what you should watch and in order and all those things. I was like, there's no way. Not doing that. So we just like, okay, we'll just watch the Avengers until, you know, Affinity War and Endgame. So we'll, we'll get it. We'll, it'll, be fair. it'll be all right. So we did that. We kind of just like, all right, all these other ones we can't watch, but we'll keep Avengers so that we can kind of watch this one that everybody's building up to in Infinity War and Endgames. But then last year, during all the quarantine stuff, we, we were like, all right, let's get Disney Plus, and we started just making our way through the flow chart. <laughs> you know what? Having known of Infinity War and Endgame didn't destroy that experience at all. In fact, in my mind, it like enhanced it a little bit. We were able to look back and like, well, Captain America's going to be okay here. <laughs> because in the end, he's going to have this broken shield, and then all of a sudden people are, we know something good's going to happen. Like, we were able to be enhanced by looking back and then working back through it again. It was beautiful to be able to like, hey, we're scared, but we know everything's going to be all right. There's, there's death before there's glory. We're, we're getting to the end, and we know how it ends. And we can read the Bible like that. That we've seen Infinity War and Endgame, and that we can go back and look at every single episode leading up to that point and know how it's going to end, and it brings all the more beauty out all along the way. One author says that Jesus drives us back to the Old Testament to examine it through Christian eyes, teaching that it leads us back to him. Like he is the offspring of Abraham that blesses the nations. He's the Passover lamb that's blood we need spilled in order that death would pass over us. He's the true temple where God and man meet in him. He's the manna from heaven, the one that we actually need to sustain us, fulfill us. He's the true prophet, the one who speaks mightily before the people of God. He's the true priest who not only makes atonement for sins, but himself becomes the atonement and comes out on the other side. He's the great king who conquers sin and death without sin. Everything has been pointing to him. Another author says that all previous revelation, all previous covenants are fulfilled in him. He is the starting point. He is the goal. All the promises of God that he made, and he made many, find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. But he's doing more than just giving us a hermeneutical principle and a way to study the Bible. These men are shattered. They had hoped that he was the redeemer, and now they're just sad. And Jesus meets them right there in the middle of their shattered hope, and he's been very patient with them, questioning them, what things are you talking about? He's been lovingly pursuing them, which is very good news, because how many times have I seen it but not seen it? 
And Jesus walks with them, meets them in the middle of that, just lovingly, patiently questioning them. He doesn't just, are you kidding me? He's calm and patient with them. He does rebuke them. They need that. We need that for our unbelief. Like we see it oh so often, but we don't see it. But Jesus is patient with them and he meets them. And it's so good that he does because we've been there many times. But where does he turn them? He turns them to the scripture. Doesn't give them something new. Now look back, guys. And what a sermon it must have been. So good that it burned them. Verse 32 did our hearts, did not our hearts burn within us while, we talked to, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Their hearts burned. And I wonder, can we feel this burn? And since Jesus isn't going to be walking with us on the Enid Trail system anytime soon, can we feel this burn? I want to notice a few words in verse 32, while, or we could translate it as, as he was talking to us, as he opened up the scripture to us. There's this vital connection that Jesus is making that's such good news for us. It's a connection between a burning heart and the open Bible. The, the burning hearts, the inside, our very souls, the core of our being, and hearing and seeing Jesus in the text. That's the connection that Jesus is making here. This is not like Paul being caught up in paradise, where he says, I was caught up in heaven and I don't even know how to explain it. This is an encounter with the living Christ in the Word, in text that they could have, they weren't looking at him at the time, but they could have unrolled them, seen them. That's what Jesus is pointing to. And, and here's what it does. The first thing that, they, that we see, we hear of their reaction of this, is in verse 29. They're discussing and kind of passive along the way, kind of here's what's going on here. And then in verse 29, all of a sudden they're urging Jesus strongly, stay with us, please stay with us. That's what it's led to. It, it's given them desire to be with Jesus. They want his presence. Please stay with us. They're urging strongly. Like Luke is making sure we know that they wanted it bad. They wanted him there. So do you want to know if you felt the burn that they felt in verse 32? You want to know if you're feeling it in the right direction? I would say look at your desires. Are they for Jesus? Do you want to be with him? If it's not that, if it's not leading to that, desire to be with Jesus, wanting his presence, then maybe you have actual heartburn. Now, I don't know how to scientifically explain that other than, like, it's a thing, and there are some pills you can take for that, I think. If it's not that, if we've eliminated that one, maybe it's the feeling you get when you go to a concert. There's been concerts I haven't, had, haven't wanted to leave. Felt great. Something is churning inside me. This is awesome. Play some more. Or a movie. Your emotions can be on high. Or you listen to some music and you have all the feels, right? You're like, just, let's just keep this going. And you're weeping, you're moved emotionally. We can have 
powerful emotional moments from really even good things and not actually be the burn that we're talking about or that we've seen in verse 32. Because here's what verse 32 was. It's related to Jesus. There's a connection with his word. It's because he lives and because his word is alive that there can actually be this burn. And here's what it leads to, desiring him. Please stay with us, wanting his presence. If there's some sort of emotional feeling or charge or high or whatever you're getting that doesn't lead you there, then you could be pretty sure that it's not what we're talking about here. That the burn that they're feeling is a burnt be with Christ. That means that we can feel that burn if we'd open up our Bibles. And we just ask God, would you show us your son here? And by the way, that is a prayer that the Father loves to answer. That the Spirit would love to, he'd love to shine the light on Christ through every part of the Scripture. He loves to do that. And that's when burning hearts happen, where we encounter God and our emotions are stirred because we're seeing him in the text because he's actually alive and there. You might object. Man, if only Jesus was the one saying it to me. Fair. You remember Galatians 3.1? Paul says to the Galatians that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified didn't it, before them? No, he wasn't. Not really. Not, they didn't see him portrayed. As, they weren't there at the cross. What's he talking about? Paul is saying, I proclaimed the gospel to you. I told you of Christ crucified. And so in that way, he was publicly portrayed, portrayed before your eyes. How? In word. In the word. That's how you see him. You could say again, but if I only knew what Jesus said, again, fair. Right? It would have been awesome to be on that road and to hear Jesus. What did you say about the Old Testament? But what did Jesus teach? It says here he taught the Old Testament concerning himself. You know what that is? That's the New Testament. It's full of the Old Testament in line of Jesus. I mean, it's everywhere. You can't like throw a rock in the New Testament without hitting the Old Testament in some form or fashion. Now, after the resurrection, Luke tells us that Jesus taught his disciples. Look in verse 44 and 45. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in where? The law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's your whole Old Testament there. So he's teaching them about those things. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. In other words, the, what was already written. We're not talking about the New Testament yet. He's opened their minds to the things that are already there. He did this for 40 days according to Acts chapter 1. He, he taught them for 40 days. And what is produced from Jesus teaching them the scriptures for 40 days? What's produced? The New Testament. Transformed lives... And some of those transformed lives wrote some stuff down that were inspired by God. They were carried along by the Spirit to actually write down and record for us. I have this book on my shelf. It's very helpful to me. It's huge. It's like the size of a dictionary. I mean, big book. It's called The Commentary on the New Testament's Use of the Old Testament. It's kind of a mouthful, but very useful. It's huge because the Old Testament is everywhere. It's all over the place. And we need some help. And so they're helping us, right? The content is everywhere. Luke is really careful to show this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, this is the first recorded sermon that we have from, from Peter. And you can just flip over to Acts chapter 2 and see what we're talking about here. In Acts chapter 2, what does he do? 
in verse 16 and following, verse 25 and following, verse 34 and following, Peter is explaining the Old Testament in light of Jesus. He's saying it's fulfilled now. So the, the outcome is repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Peter, I mean, you're just denying Jesus, and now all of a sudden you're saying, actually, the whole Old Testament, that's all true, and it's fulfilled in Jesus, and you need to repent and be baptized in his name. Where did Peter get this? Where are you coming from, Peter? Well, the Holy Spirit is doing what Jesus promised it would do. In, in John chapter 16, he says that the Spirit's going to come, he's going to lead you and teach you into this, all this truth that you need. So the Holy Spirit is doing what Jesus said it would do, and it's teaching Peter, and he opened his mouth. And out comes the content of the Old Testament saying it's been fulfilled in Christ. In Acts chapter 13, Peter's, or Paul's first sermon at Antioch, the Old Testament is in chapter 16 and following, 32 and following. He gets to them, he alludes to them, he thinks of them, and he says they're fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, leading to what? Verse 42 and 43 as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next day. And after meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with him, urged them that they might continue in the grace of God. There's maybe some heartburn there, right? They're burning inside. In Acts chapter 2, they were cut to the hearts by hearing the Old Testament in light of the person work of Jesus. And so Paul, he, like, he just does it again. I'll give you the Old Testament in light of Jesus all over again. And so here's the conclusion. One author helps us. In the book of Acts, here's what Luke is doing. Luke constantly refers to the apostolic gospel as that which is preached from the Old Testament and which is inexplicable without the Old Testament. So it would be quite impossible to proclaim Jesus Christ as the Savior without constant reference to the foundations which have been laid in the history of God's saving work in the Old Testament. So if we want to encounter the living Christ, we open up the Bible, anywhere, and we find Jesus there. We don't need a certain setting, the, the music, musical notes in a certain pattern, or the lights at a certain dimness, or a certain atmosphere. Now you, worship bands all over the world today know what's going to make you feel something. It's not that hard. We don't need a certain amount of knowledge to capture this here. We don't need to look for an experience or feeling. What we need is just to open the Bible and have an open heart and say, God, would you show me your son, Jesus? Jesus himself makes this connection for us. So he leaves us no room for saying, we love Easter and the risen Christ, but we're not really into the rest of the scripture or the Old Testament. There's really no room for that. If you love the risen Christ and not the scripture, then you really don't love the risen Christ. Amen. If you love Easter and not the Bible, then probably what's going on is that you might love a feeling. You might love an experience. You might love a tradition. You might have some sort of emotional reaction and it might feel really good. But it's not Jesus. Jesus is alive and well, and even if that's what we're falling into, loving an experience more than actually loving Christ, he can meet us there if we, he will meet us in the text. And then we can feel the burn as they did, as we see him and encounter him and experience him in his word, and just open before us. Notice, Jesus appeared to them on the road and they missed it. He appears to them in the scripture, they kind of missed that too. 
And praise God, he isn't done. Are your hearts burning? Can we see this? Can we go a little further? Right? He still has one more appearance, and it's at the table. Verse 28. So they drew near to the village which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further, which is strange, right? What? What are you doing? He's, is he putting on a show? I'm going to keep going. Like, what? What is going on? Some translations almost say that like he pretended. Maybe your translation says that. Like he's, he's, he's faking them out. Jukes them. The, the original Jesus juke right here in, in Luke. After missing him on the road and missing him in the scripture, what is Jesus doing? He, he's kind of testing them, I think. Pressing into what's actually in their hearts, to what they're actually feeling. I, I think it's similar to what Jesus does with the Syrophoenician woman. You remember when we went through the Gospel of Mark, we have this strange episode with the Syrophoenician woman where Jesus goes there and she comes to him and, and she wants Jesus to heal her daughter. And he says, we, we don't take what's for the children and we, we don't give the bread that's for the children and give it to the dogs. Like, what? What are you talking about? Don't call people dogs, Jesus. That's like, that's not good for the, the, the thing we're trying to do here on this earth. What's he doing? He was pushing in on something for this woman and for us. And she, she doesn't even bat an eye like, yeah, but even the dogs get the crumbs. Because she knew, she knew there was faith in there. And Jesus draws it out for us like, hey, we don't give that to the dogs. She's like, I'm fine. I just need a crumb. That's enough. It's enough. He was pushing in, drawing out some faith. The, 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 the wrestling match with Jacob. J- Jacob is alone with God and God is wrestling him. And puts his hip out of socket, reminding him, like, there's only one number one ultimate champion, and that's me, right? God has got the belt, right? It's, it's on him fully and ultimately and eternally. He puts his hip out of socket, right? But Jacob hangs on. Now, this seems strange. How, how does Jacob keep going? Because God had brought himself down to that level and, and wanted to press into Jacob, wanted to see what was there, wanted him to hold on to him, to get something out of him, to see what was there. He was drawing out faith. I think that's what he's doing here in verse 28. As he gives them this juke, he, he's drawing them out. In verse 29, they respond, they urge him strongly, saying, stay with us. It is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. And so he goes in to stay with them. Their burning hearts have changed them from being kind of indifferent to whether Jesus walks with them or not. We'll just tell him what's happened. Might as well. He's walking this way. We're walking this way. We'll just tell him what's gone. Doesn't really make any difference. So now they're urging him strongly. In other words, their, their desires have been changed. They have different desires than they had at the beginning. But more than just their desires were changed. Look at the situation and the scenario that's going on here. This doesn't stand out to us, but it would have to the original audience. See, they were sort of hosting Jesus, like it was kind of their party as they walked to Emmaus. But notice what happens here in verse 30. When he was at table with them, someone else's house, what does he do? He takes the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. He kind of plays the host here. He, he turns the table on them as if he's in the, in the house as the master. And they would have been familiar with how Jesus did this for 5,000, how he just blessed the bread, broke it, and, and multiplied it. And how at the Last Supper, surely they would have heard the words because of their close association with the 11 disciples and with some women that were close to Jesus. Surely they would have heard Jesus' words at the Last Supper, how he broke the bread. But there's something personal here at this table. 
That's what tables were like. They were, they were close fellowship. There was communion at this table. There was familiarity, and, and they identify, it leads to them identifying Jesus. In verse 16, their eyes were kept from seeing him. In verse 31, they are opened, passive, open. The same way that later we're going to say that they, God, Jesus opened the scripture for them. It's the same kind of language. Only God does this, and he beautifully waits to show them so that he could give them all that he's given them up to that point, so that he could be rightly identified. If he'd been identified earlier than this, then all that conversation about the Old Testament wouldn't have happened. So Jesus waits to open their eyes until we're through with what has happened here. We, we just had the first Easter service on Sunday. The word was opened and now we have the ordinances, right? We, we heard the word, and now, as Augustine put it, that the, the sacraments, the, the ordinances, the breaking of bread, that was the visible word. So we have the, the word opened and the visible word now before them. The, the table and the breaking of bread leads to open eyes for them. And you got to catch this. You remember the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve we're told you can eat anything. It's yours. Just don't eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He just excludes one. And you know what happens in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5? The snake has slithered into the garden and says of that one tree that they were commanded not to eat, take and eat, and your eyes will be opened. In verse, chapter 3, verse 6, what does Genesis 3 say? That Adam and Eve, they, they took and they ate and their eyes were opened. In disobedience, in rebellion to God, Adam and Eve, they take, they eat, and their eyes are opened, but not as they had hoped. Instead, their eyes are open now to the, the broken fellowship that they have with this God who used to walk with them in the cool of the day. And what do they do? They hid. They run and hide. One author says this, she took and ate. So simple the act, so hard it's undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. The Lord's Supper, Jesus comes and he sits down with his disciples and he says, take and eat. This is my body given for you. This is the blood of the new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He was previewing the cross and the resurrection. Then Jesus is betrayed into the hands of sinful men. He goes to the cross. His body is broken. His blood is poured out. And here we are on Sunday where Jesus has now appeared to them on the road, in the scripture, and now in the breaking of the bread. So now when he blesses the bread and breaks it and gives it to them, there's this new, sal new reality for them. There's salvation now because his body was broken and given for them. They took and they ate. And what happens to them in Luke 24? 
Their eyes were opened. Fellowship restored. Jesus, he hosted them. He offered the bread up to them. He gave it to them. Eden then, right? Eden is reversed. The, the curse is upended. It is now triumphed over. That is what Luke is showing us, that Jesus as the risen one is the fulfillment of all of God's purposes and that he has completely turned the curse upside down, upside down standing over it as the victor. And the gift of this salvation, this reversal of the curse is not like the tra- trespass. Adam and Eve, when they take and they eat, they hid because fellowship had been broken. And now fellowship has been restored. They're around the table and Jesus is the one who offers, reaches out to them, communion, fellowship, closeness with himself, and they don't run and hide. Jesus kind of does. He disappears. He does that. But in verse 32, what are they doing? They don't hide. They say to one another, did our hearts not burn within us while, as he talked with us on the road, while he opened us the scripture, and they rose that same hour. They just walked a while, and now they're returning. And they found the eleven and those who were with them, and they gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed, and, it has, ap- and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened to them on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. He appeared to them on the road, they missed it. He appeared to them in the scripture, they had missed it, and they're still trying to figure it out. He appears to them in the breaking of the bread, and their eyes were opened. And the word is already there that he is risen indeed. And now this this kind of new burning heart society, as I call them, has now added their weight through the public witness that Jesus is risen indeed. So that now through Jesus' death and resurrection, through their eyewitness account, through their actually seeing Jesus on the road in the text, in the table, at the table, they could be delivered from the curse, and so can we. Take and eat become verbs of salvation. They look to Jesus' eternal reign. They ring of death's defeat, ultimately, finally, fully, and they speak of restored fellowship with the one who created them for it. Take and eat. Jesus' body has been given. Salvation has been offered. But it's to be received and eaten, taken personally in connection with him. In other words, it's personalized and activated, in a sense, by faith. Take and eat are verbs now of salvation because the curse has been undone by Jesus. They're verbs of salvation if we would believe. And if you believe, here's what we can say. As sure as I see and touch and taste this bread and this wine, juice, So sure is it that Jesus Christ is not a fancy but a fact, that he is for real, and that he offers me himself to be my savior, my bread of life, and my guide to glory. He has left me this right, this gesture, this token, this ritual action as a guarantee of this grace. He instituted it, and it is a sign of life-giving union with him, and I'm taking part in it, and thus I know that I am his, and he is mine forever." Can you affirm that? If so, here's what we do next. We take and eat. We've opened up the word, and now we're going to see visible word. If, if you cannot affirm that, we, we would said of saying, take this meal with us. Take Jesus. Trust in him. Put your faith wholly in him. 
He is the one who came and put death in its grave, who, as Luke shows us, is risen indeed. He is the one who has overturned the curse, upended it through his death and resurrection. He went down into suffering and exploded out in glory. Believe in him. And if you do, here's a meal of victory. Jesus stood over Satan, sin, and death and said, it's finished. Take and eat. So if you're a believer, we take this meal with the great hope that Jesus has risen indeed. Let's pray together, church. Jesus Christ, there are dead hearts in this room. There are hearts that are not aflame by your word. And I ask you, I plead with you, Holy Spirit, set them on fire. I pray that you would grant faith and repentance today, that no one would leave this building thinking that they need to try harder or be good, or try to win your favor somehow, because eternal life is attainable. I pray that that would be banished from their minds, Jesus, and that they would see your glory on the cross, your death in their place, and your resurrection to give them hope for the future. I pray that they would see that, that they would look upon this portrayal of you crucified and risen again, and that they would believe. That they would turn from their old life and trust you, that's all that's required, God, is that we believe you, that we believe this story, and you have to give that gift, and, and we pray for it. God, I remember having a dead heart. I'd heard a whole lot of Bible stories before you opened up my eyes so that I could see, and so we pray that for those today who don't know you. God, we ask that this would be the last day of that, and that they would begin to know you. And I pray also for those in this room who love you, and I pray that you would just pour it on. I pray that every day we would be in your word, meeting with you, seeing who you are, rearranging our thoughts and our desires, and that we would be like these disciples and just crave more and just want to be with you and not want to put our Bibles down. We don't worship your word, God, but we could not know you without it. And we are so thankful that for 2,000 years, for, for 3,500 years, these stories have been preserved meticulously so that we could see who you are. You want people to know you, God. Draw us to yourself today. Thank you, Jesus, for crushing the snake who convinced us to take and eat and bring misery and death and destruction into the world, and you have reversed the whole thing. And so we take and eat today. We acknowledge that we are sinful. We acknowledge we don't deserve any of the things that you have done for us. We deserve hell and death. We deserve to drink the cup of wrath, but today we drink a cup of juice 
because you drank that cup for us, Jesus. We can't wait to see you face to face. We can't wait to live with you on a new garden that covers the whole earth. We can't wait to be with you forever. So as we drink and as we eat and remember your sacrifice, Jesus, we also proclaim your death until you come, and we can't wait. Come, Lord Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.